Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown with three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown. You get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at Wilmington and beaches from PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. If we continue to treat it as something that just needs to be fixed and, and eliminated, that deprives depression sufferers of the opportunity to perhaps relate to their depression in some other way as something that they might be able to incorporate into their lives in an ongoing way. This drive to fix depression too can often leave depression sufferers feeling like failures if they can't. And that's the last thing that people need when they're suffering so much. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba Effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Jessica Koblenz. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Religious Studies and Theology at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana, where her research and teaching focus on Catholic systematic theology, feminist theologies, and mental health in theological perspective. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Dust in the Blood, A Theology of Life with Depression. Jessica Koblenz, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thanks for having me, David. Well, I want to start out our conversation in very much the same place that you start out your book, Dust in the Blood. And that is when we try and talk about depression, it seems like there's kind of, for want of a better term, a black box there. Like we don't really necessarily have the language to really grapple with what it is that we're talking about. And so I think I want to start right there. When we talk about depression, what are we talking about? And more importantly, what are we not talking about? It's a great place to start, David. This is something that really fascinated me as I began my research on depression. And I began with the stories of depression sufferers writing about their own experiences, often in memoirs or first person narratives. And one of the things that I found peculiar was how often they talked about what depression was not. And I think that was reflective of kind of common misconceptions, well-intentioned though they may be, that kind of circulate throughout society that paint depression as something of a long and severe sadness. And while many depression sufferers talk about sadness as part of what they experience, a lot of them say, this is so much more than sadness. Everybody gets sad sometimes. Everybody has a series of bad days. This is something else entirely. In sufferers struggle to find the right words, what also fascinated me was that they tended to turn to figurative language, metaphors, analogies. And in particular, there was a lot of figurative language around sort of dislocation to another world, depression is a landscape. It's an inhospitable place. And to me, that signaled that, that depression was far more encompassing than a fluctuation of emotion, far more engrossing. People often felt trapped in it. 
in the same way that you might if you were cast into another world and couldn't get out of it again. Well, and this is one of the ways in which your book, Dust in the Blood, was so helpful to me because longtime listeners will know that I myself have struggled for all of my adult life with severe depression that at times takes on psychotic characteristics, which means that I sort of lose touch with reality when my depression is in its real depths. And the language of going to a different landscape, that really helped to give me a way of thinking about my own experience because I've described it to my wife and to other loved ones like, I'm looking at you through a pane of glass, but I'm in a different world. And the facts that you see and the evidence that you see of your love for me don't compute in the same way that they compute for me. Now, I'm, I'm speaking just of my own experience, but I found resonances for that kind of language in what you're talking about in your book, Dust in the Blood. But as I say that to you, does that seem to be grounding in the same place as these other anecdotal accounts of depression that you picked up in your book? It does, David. And as somebody else who has uh, also struggled with depression, something that that really captured my attention in these narratives was how much I also resonated in many ways with the experience. Even this example you gave of, of feeling like you're experiencing life separated from others by this pane of glass, that's actually a, a, a very powerful descriptor that I resonate with as well. And that you see in in, in poets and patients talking to their psychologists who are keeping notes on this, it is that kind of preponderance of, of recurring imagery that signaled to me that, well, of course, people's experiences of depression vary and the language we use to talk about it is also culturally conditioned in a lot of ways. While all that may be true, these recurring images may help us capture something of what depression is like so that people like you and me and others who are struggling to communicate what it's like may have a sort of better vocabulary, something more proximate to how this really strange experience actually is. Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Jessica Koblenz. She is an assistant professor in the Department of Religious Studies and Theology at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Dust in the Blood, A Theology of Life with Depression. Well, one of the things that also comes up early in your book, Dust in the Blood, is the fact that when clinicians try and give a general account of depression, they run into this kind of poverty of language that we're talking about. And in particular, you spend a couple of pages looking at the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is literally the handbook for psychologists that want to look at mental health and divergences from what we might call normative mental health. And you raise up some of the things in their own depictions and descriptions and definitions of depression that might be inadequate. But for listeners that may not have thumbed through the DSM recently, what are some of the inadequacies that you discovered in that kind of clinical accounting of depression? For one thing, you know, if you actually take a look at the diagnostic criteria, there's often these sort of pairings of contradictory symptoms. Some people, when they're depressed, sleep a lot more, some sleep a lot less. <laughs> some, you know, that, that's just one example. So there's, even within the criteria themselves, all this sort of ambiguity that, of course, it, it lends itself to this diversity that exists in people's depressive experience, as I mentioned. But it, it can be very confusing for the layperson who is trying to figure out what it means when they're given a diagnosis of depression. Now, something I, I should mention in relation to the DSM criteria is that when a lot of people are really suffering and they seek the aid of a, a medical doctor, psychiatrist, psychologist, people, when they're given a diagnosis of depression based on these criteria, often feel a sense of relief, right? Oh, I have some profile that I can try and understand myself in relation to even if it doesn't quite map onto my experience, kind of this depressed state, which often is a symptoms that's associated with sadness. That's another major criteria of the DSM diagnostic profile that, as I mentioned a moment ago, a lot of sufferers say, okay, yeah, this is something like sadness, but that's not quite right. E even though that may be the case, a lot of sufferers still say having a name for what I'm going through is important. But some of these boxes that we often have to fit ourselves into or that clinicians have to fit us into in order to 
run our bills through insurance companies or kind of make sense of us relative to other people. They have their uses, but they often allied or miss some of the really distinctive and often most difficult features of depression that a lot of sufferers talk about when they're not asked to fit themselves within this checklist of symptoms. And this is why your kind of patiently going through this in the first part of your book, Dust in the Blood, was so valuable to me. Because what I'm getting from this part of, of our conversation together is that when clinicians look and try and give a kind of global accounting of depression, they miss something that's very important. And that is every person's experience of depression is idiosyncratic. It's individualized. But what seems to be a commonality among these various distinct experiences of depression is this phrase that you use, and I think you get it from Martin Heidegger, it's Unheimlichkeit or unhome-likeness. And I'd love for you to help my listeners understand how maybe clinical things like sleeping too much or sleeping too little may not be good general categories for understanding depression, but something like unhome-likeness could be. And how is that possible? And what do we mean when we're using this weird phrase like unhome-likeness? It is a mouthful. Yeah, well, I should say when I set out to start this research on depression, I did not begin my work thinking that I was going to sort of raise these critiques and concerns about the standard diagnostic profile that psychologists use in the, here in the United States. I, you know, regularly see psychologists and totally, you know, support all of that. And many psychologists would say that even using the DSM criteria, it's, a, it's an art as well as a science diagnosis. That said, when I started to see that the experiences that depression sufferers described pushed back against these criteria, I set out to try and find another way of talking about this that, that it seemed to me reflected more of what depression sufferers were saying about their own experience. And that led me to... Uh, really philosophical studies of mental illness and depression in particular. And in philosophy, there's a, a method of approaching and examining human experience known as phenomenology. Some may, some listeners may know this sort of method of, of studying human experience where philosophers like Heidegger and others have developed a very sort of rich vocabulary for naming dimensions of human experience that are constitutive, but also often fall outside of the frame of our immediate consciousness. And one of the ways that phenomenologists talk about the the backdrop of our human experience often, things that affect how we experience ourselves, but that we don't often immediately notice in our direct consciousness is with some of this language of mood, which is a sort of technical term that I, I talk about in the book. But in particular, this experience of unhomelikeness. And what phenomenologists tell us is that, you know, most of the time, most of us experience the world in all these sort of taken for granted ways. We experience ourselves as sharing a common experience with others that helps us feel connected to them. We perceive certain shared aspects of experience, but there are times in life where that shifts. <laughs> and in in such a shift as unhomelikeness, when we find ourselves in a state of unhomelikeness, often in the case of depression suffers, this manifests in the loss or diminishment of certain kinds of possibilities that we otherwise take for granted. So one example I find helpful that I talk about in the book is, you know, depression sufferers often say, I can't get out of bed in the morning. And people often say like, oh, well, I'm tired in the morning too. Everybody knows what that feels like. You just got to push your way through it and get out of bed. But often what depression sufferers report is that like, no, the the possibility of getting out of bed is no longer available to me because of this loss of possibility that accompanies the state of unhomelikeness. That's just one example. There's this unhomelikeness that philosophers associate with depression. There's also often a loss of other forms of agency, a change in how people experience time, which affects things like hope and change, experiences of change, things like that. 
And the fact that this technical language of unhomelikeness resonates with these metaphors of displacement that I see all over depression memoirs was all the more reason why this seemed like a, a fitting way to capture some of that elusive reality of depression. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Jessica Koblenz. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Religious Studies and Theology at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana, where her research and teaching focus on Catholic systematic theology, feminist theologies, and mental health in a theological perspective. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Dust in the Blood, A Theology of Life with Depression. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Dr. Jessica Koblenz. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Religious Studies and Theology at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. Her research and teaching focus on Catholic systematic theology, feminist theologies, and mental health in a theological perspective. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Dust in the Blood, A Theology of Life with Depression. One of the things that comes up again and again in your book, Dust in the Blood, is the idea of narrative. And when we talk about narrative for listeners that may not have done literary theory in a while, we're talking about broad categories like tragedy and comedy, things that start off well, get mixed up in the middle, and then eventually are resolved, or things that start out well and then get worse and then stay worse. When we're talking about these kinds of narratives, tragedy and comedy, it's it's easy to think that every single human interaction has a kind of tidy way of explaining its flow. One of the things that comes up both in your book but also in our conversation so far is that depression can oftentimes be an interruption of that tidy flow, that notion that somehow all will be well or that everything can even be explained. Now, when I'm saying all this, these are my words filtered through my own understanding. But as I'm saying this, am I grasping what you've been putting forth in the book, or would you say it in a different way? I think that's right, David. As a Christian theologian, one of the things I was interested in when I set out on this project was to learn how Christians in the United States were already talking about depression and already trying to make sense of it in light of the tenets of the Christian faith and the practices that shape their religious lives. And one of the things that I found was that to the extent that a lot of Christians were talking about mental illness and depression in particular, they often were approaching it as a condition that could be explained in these neat, tidy narratives, these sort of cause and effect explanations, just like anything else, just like we explain weather patterns or something. So too, if we just think hard enough, we can also understand depression, why it happens, how God relates to it, how Christians should therefore relate to their own suffering. You David, in your question, named some of the ways that, that Christians often do this that, that listeners might be familiar with, something like everything happens for a reason, right? That is often something that's said to depression sufferers as a message of, of hope, right? If you just hang on long enough, all of this terrible, horrible suffering that you can't get out of will soon make sense. And the reason why God bestowed this condition on you will come to light. There are a lot of depression sufferers who find messages like that to be comforting because in our modern world where we like to understand and explain 
everything and control as much as possible, that kind of narrative can be familiar and therefore consoling and encouraging, right? Hang on and all of this will make sense. But for other depression sufferers, that can really strike them as a sort of message of toxic positivity, right? It can come across as a betrayal or a dismissal of the real severity of depression to say, oh, just look on the bright side. There's a reason for this. Doesn't doesn't ring true to a lot of people who are really suffering, excuse me. And some people find that it discloses a rather troubling image of God, a God who could teach us through any number of means, but chooses to bestow upon us tremendous suffering to sort of actualize some lesson or purpose that probably could have been done some other way. So yeah, all that is to say, Christians are no exception to this drive to explain and justify suffering in ways that sometimes are are really detrimental to people who are going through depression. And I want to stick with this, but by doing so, I want to take a step back for a moment because there is a kind of tendency in wider culture, not just Christian culture, to treat depression as something that needs to be, for want of a better word, managed. We need to get you back to productivity. If you stay depressed, you're not going to be as good at your job. You're not going to make as much money. You're not, you're, and you're going to be less fun to be around, which means that your social value is going to diminish. And so we want to get you back to full productivity. And there's a real kind of almost mechanistic notion about how we tackle depression. Let's not actually look at the root causes of it, or let's not look at the ways in which it, it may be tied to a loss of meaning or to some traumatic event, but rather let's just kind of paper over whatever the wounds are and get you back up and functioning as quickly as possible. Now, this is radio, so I've kind of caricatured the situation for the moment. I know that there's nuances here, but when I talk about that kind of approach, it seemed to me like there was one type of Christian approach to depression that bought into that way of thinking about it. It's a problem to be managed and fixed, not an experience with which we can be an accompaniment and can be disciples along the road. Now, when I say it in that way, I'd love to hear your thoughts about that one particular way that Christians look at depression. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think often that approach to depression, as you know, which positions it really as a problem that needs to be fixed as quickly as possible and with the least burden possible to other people. I think it's often fueled, again, by, by good intentions where people say, oh, this person's suffering. Let's fix it. Let's end the suffering. And this kind of mentality sometimes expresses itself in in Christian views that posit that depression is a sort of sin or a result of some sinfulness that the sufferer has been going through. And so if the sufferer just repents, if they just decide in earnest to be more faithful to God, to pray more, to live a better Christian life, that will restore the Christian to a a better, happier state of, of mind. It's a sort of quick fix solution that, again, I think is often posited and often embraced by sufferers because it promises the quick fix that you are mentioning, David. But the problem with that, I mean, listeners might anticipate is that for a lot of people, there isn't a quick fix for depression. You know, we have made great strides in medicine and in psychology when it comes to treating depression um, and other mental illnesses, making these conditions more livable, that is true. But for a lot of people, it is still a, a chronic and recurring condition. And so if we continue to treat it singularly as something that just needs to be fixed and, and eliminated, that deprives depression sufferers of the opportunity to perhaps relate to their depression in some other way as something that they might be able to incorporate into their lives in an ongoing way. I think this this drive to fix depression too can often leave depression sufferers feeling like failures if they can't. And that's the last thing that people need when they're suffering so much. Well, and the flip side of this coin is 
for someone to look at a person who's undergoing depression and to say, ah, this is evidence of your lack of faith. And I mean that in two ways. Either you're lacking faith and therefore God is punishing you with the depression, or you're lacking faith because this lesson that God is giving you, you don't have the eyes to see what's really going on here. And if you could just see it, you'd see this for the blessing that it is. Now, when I say it that way, am I overplaying my hand or have you actually encountered points where you've seen Christian approaches to depression that take that form. That's exactly right. And sometimes it's said that directly. Other times it's much more subtle. I'm thinking of one example I talk about in the book where a a well-known celebrity who happens to be a Christian talks about how every day he wakes up in the morning and he chooses joy. He prays to God and he chooses joy. And he says in in this interview that I I quote that, that that keeps the depression away because I choose joy. And it is that sort of bifurcation of Christian faithfulness and depression that I think you're pointing to really well. And that also, as listeners can imagine, really fuels a stigma, mental health stigma. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Jessica Koblenz. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Religious Studies and Theology at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Dust in the Blood, A Theology of Life with Depression. Well, as we've been talking about these ways in which Christians have looked at persons with depression or the event of depression and have tried to give it kind of theological shape and naming, I was really struck by a pivot point that you make about midway through the book where you bring in the thought of Karen Kilby. And what really struck me about this was Kilby says, stop trying to tell someone else's story about what depression is, and instead listen to what their particular idiosyncratic experience of depression is. And I believe, if I'm recalling correctly, the name for this shift is maybe perspectivalism. There may be a different term that begins with a P that I'm missing. But tell us a little bit about that shift away from trying to narrate someone else's experience to trying to listen to the experience that someone is relaying to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Karen Kilby is a fabulous theologian, and her work really rocked my world as I was working on this book. She doesn't use the language of perspectivalism. She talks about it in terms of, she she says there's a, a fundamental distinction between talking about meaning and suffering in the first person, as in my suffering, second person, as in our suffering, and third person, as in your suffering. And Kilby is building on the work of other theologians in in recent Christian theology who have really criticized the way Christian theologians and other Christians have tended to talk about suffering. And she says that whenever we talk about what suffering means, particularly what suffering means before God, whenever we talk about this in the second and third person, we necessarily are imposing meaning onto the suffering of another you know, when I say, David, this is why your suffering is happening. God has a plan for you. This is why like, I'm necessarily imposing meaning on your suffering. And she raises a number of critiques about why that's a problem. One that's fundamental is she says, this puts us in sort of wrong relationship to the suffering of other people. We end up justifying their suffering, (laughs) which is an unethical way to relate to other people's suffering. It's an unethical way of thinking about other people's suffering. And often for any of us who've, you know, which is really all of us who've accompanied somebody who's really suffering in, in any way, I think a lot of us intuit that It's practically speaking a bad idea to tell other people (laughs) what their suffering means. It's bad tact pastorally. But one of the things that fascinates me about Kilby is she makes a case that it's not just impolite or impractical to do that, but actually it's theologically dishonest. That actually to claim that I know that God has a purpose for your suffering. I know how God relates to your suffering. I know why you're suffering and how it's going to get resolved is an overextension of what we as human beings, even the most learned theologians and pious people can claim. So it's not just a sort of 
practical, an Im, or I should say an impractical move. It's also theologically dishonest to impose meaning onto other people's suffering. Now, in your book, Dust in the Blood, you present Karen Kilby's position, and then you engage with some of the theological critiques of Karen Kilby's position. And right now, I'm thinking of, for want of a better term, the theobros that like to come into discussions of theology on Twitter and in other social media spaces. And they begin to say things like, but if you abandon the kind of objective truth that we know the Bible gives us about all this, then all that you're going to have is just subjectivity, and it's going to be the war of all against all. And so how does Karen Kilby, or how does your understanding of Karen Kilby push back against the notion that if we simply listen to somebody telling us about their experience of a possibly sadistic God relating to them, that we're going to have the collapse of all theological categories, and it's just going to be subjectivity all the way down? Yeah, well, well, I won't speak for Karen Coley, but I'll tell you how I'm reading her, what I'm taking from her ideas, which is I can understand how people would be nervous about um, surrendering this theological certainty. But the fact is, Christianity has a very long tradition of uh, epistemological humility or a sort of humility in our claims about God because God is ultimately beyond human comprehension. That's a pretty fundamental tenet of Christian theology. That said, Christians believe that God, who is beyond human knowledge, has chosen to reveal God's self to us and that we can access that revelation in all sorts of ways, including the scriptures. And one thing that that Kilby points to that has influenced my thinking on this is, you know, she says, think about the long traditions of talking about God with multiple images and names, God as father, but also God as mother, God as potter, God as creator, and so on and so forth. We have all of these different ways of talking about God, none of which are exhaustive, none of which are absolute. And yet we have been pretty skilled over thousands of years in making sense of how such claims about God name something that is true, but also require that we acknowledge that there's something not true about them too. <laughs> that, that, Like I said, they're not exhaustive. And so what I would say to the Theo bros is I'm taking that tradition of humility in, in our claims about God and advocating that we continue to talk about suffering. We continue to talk about how God relates to suffering, but that we do that with an acknowledgement that we are not certain often about, particularly following kind of Kilby's grammatical distinctions, we are not certain how God relates to the suffering of others. And that if we're going to accompany sufferers in grappling with their conditions from a theological perspective, we can do that. We just need to not overreach. We need to acknowledge the plurality of perspectives that exist in the scripture on how God relates to suffering that exists throughout the Christian tradition. I think it's a very traditional Christian theological perspective counter with, to what these bros would say. Before we go to break, I just wanted to mention that if you're interested in questions of trauma and depression, such as we've been discussing here, and you're curious about how they interface with religion and faith, we have several episodes dealing with these topics on our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. For example, you might want to explore our conversation with Taylor Shulman about rebuilding a life in the wake of gun violence or our conversation with Dan Koch about learning to speak about the landscape of spiritual abuse and trauma, or our interview with the Reverend Tish Harrison Warren, where we talk about her powerful book, Prayer in the Night, which seeks to integrate spirituality and prayer with the reality of depression and suffering. We also talk with the Reverend John Edward Crane about the relationship of spirituality to emotional recovery and recovery from substance abuse, and our guest Carrie Connolly talked to us about recovery from our addiction to soul murder. Again, you can find all of these on our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Jessica Koblenz. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Religious Studies and Theology at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana, where her research and teaching focus on Catholic systematic theology, feminist theologies, and mental health in a theological perspective. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Dust in the Blood, A Theology of Life with Depression. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of conversations and interviews, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Dr. Jessica Koblenz. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Religious Studies and Theology at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana, where her research and teaching focus on Catholic systematic theology, feminist theologies, and mental health in a theological perspective. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Dust in the Blood, A Theology of Life with Depression. In the last segment, we were talking about the ways in which theologians tend to get depression wrong. And if we wanted to find a scriptural reference for that, we could think about the friends of Job who sit down with him after all of his trauma and try and explain away all the suffering that he's been through and try and re-narrate that for him. And given that theologians are really bad at this, one of the things that I really appreciated about your book, Dust in the Blood, is that you are trying, after sort of uh, doing an excavation of the ways in which we continually fail at this process, you try and offer some new ways of theologizing, and you do so by going back into biblical narratives, particularly biblical wilderness narratives, and I'd love to hear more about that. How does the wilderness help us to expand our understanding of depression? (laughs) So I turned to the wilderness in part because I wanted to follow the experiences of depression suffers into the Christian tradition. And as I mentioned earlier, I'm really taken by the ways that so many depression sufferers describe their experience as a dislocation into a harsh landscape, into a world that is unfamiliar, that is difficult to dwell in, and they feel stuck there. And The more I meditated on that uh, imagery and reflected on it with the help of philosophy, you know, I I realized Christians, we have lots of stories about dislocation into harsh landscapes. They're called the wilderness experiences. And so, yeah, I spent a lot of time in the second half of the book looking at biblical wilderness stories, these stories in the scriptures where the Israelites are displaced from what their recent homeland is, and need to reorient and learn how to live in a inhospitable place in a harsh landscape. There are certain sort of experiential resonances with the wilderness. The one I mentioned, the sort of sense that the depression is a a place, it's a world, these sort of geographical metaphors in depression memoirs resonated with the geographical imagery of these wilderness stories in the scriptures. But also I found the wilderness as it was understood, certainly in the ancient world, but also throughout much of Christian history and Christian treatments of the wilderness has really been understood as fundamentally uh, a place that is difficult for people to live in. So even In the scriptures themselves, there are times when this wilderness imagery is used not only to talk about literal landscapes, but figurative experiences, you know, this ways of talking about human precarity and even places or experiences that are threatening to human life. And theologians over the last 2000 years have picked up on that to talk about human experiences that take place far away from the biblical deserts. Um, And they've talked about them as wilderness experiences because they embody this sort of human precarity and difficulty and struggle that are associated with these landscapes in the scriptures. The last thing I'll say about the wilderness stories of the scriptures that I was so taken by and that I find to be so helpful for thinking about depression is that the wilderness stories in the scripture are 
really theologically diverse. So if you look at these stories, the Israelites find themselves in the wilderness for all sorts of reasons. God relates to them differently in different wilderness spaces. And to me, that just expanded our theological reflection on depression, right? If perhaps depression is a wilderness experience, that opens up all these questions like which wilderness experience? And because depression is so much of the experience is about the diminishment or loss or absence of possibility, to me, it seemed fitting that our theological resources should actually empower sufferers with an expansion of theological options. I'm so glad to hear you say that because this was really the takeaway that I had from that portion of your book, Dust in the Blood. And that was when we talk about depression as a wilderness experience, we're not closing off our explanation and and co-limiting it down to a narrow kind of set of factors, but rather it opens up a blossoming of multiple ways then of beginning to experience and engage with this. What I loved about this is that it's it's a way of reintroducing the kind of individualized and idiosyncratic experiences of depression that we talked about earlier. Your experience of the wilderness may be different from my experience of the wilderness, and that doesn't mean that we're having either one of us an inauthentic experience. It's that we're having authentic experiences of a similar landscape in differing ways. And it can have commonalities, but it also, everybody's journey in the desert is a little different, if I can use that phrasing. But this raises a question that you didn't touch on so much in the book, but just gets hinted at. What's the relationship between something like this wilderness experience and maybe a metaphor or an image that that Christians and those that come from the Abrahamic traditions maybe would more freely associate with depression, and that is the notion of exile. Well, I, in the book, draw on the work of Walter Brueggemann, wonderful Bible scholar who I know you know a great deal about, David. And he actually talks about the story of the exile, the Babylonian exile in the Hebrew scriptures as a form of wilderness experience. He says, yeah, like relative to other experiences of displacement, Babylonia wasn't the worst place to be, but it was still a place that was far removed from their homeland, the land that they identified with, the land where they wanted to be. It was still incredibly disoriented. And so he talks about it with the language of landlessness. It's as as an experience of being unmoored and away from the kind of homeland in a way that that I argue is is akin to wilderness experiences. And what's interesting about the example of the exile, particularly the Babylonian exile, is this is where a lot of the prophetic literature of the Hebrew scripture flourished. And a lot of that talks about the need for the Israelites to repent. It suggests that the Israelites may be somewhat complicit in their displacement. And I suggest in the book that this way of thinking about God's relationship to displacement might lead some of us to think, okay, well, if depression is this kind of wilderness experience, you know, maybe it is the result of sinfulness and something that people need to repent of. In other words, that kind of, that particular story in the scripture can lead us to think about depression in a way that's already quite familiar to a lot of Christians. And and as I said earlier, some people find that way of thinking about their depression actually quite empowering. What's important to me, though, is that sufferers know that that's not the only story of displacement in the scriptures. And that's not only important because individuals have different experiences of depression, that that I think invites different theological reflection, but also because often over the course of a person's experience of depression, they experience their depression differently. This is something that the sociologist David Karp writes about really powerfully, where he talks about how at different points in a person's struggle with depression, they often make meaning of it differently. And if they don't have the ability and a supportive community that helps them think about the different meanings of their condition in relation to a larger community at different times, then that can make the experience of depression worse off. So I think the the plurality of these wilderness experiences often can support an individual across his or her lifetime in a way that's so important for religious communities and all communities to do. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Jessica Koblenz. She's assistant professor in the Department of Religious Studies and Theology at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana, where her research and teaching focus on Catholic systematic theology, feminist theologies, and mental health in a theological perspective. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Dust in the Blood, A Theology of Life with Depression. There was a phrase that you used early on in your book, Dust in the Blood, that really stuck with me. And you said, this is the body that I theologize from. This is the place where I'm doing my theology. And it really struck me, the embodiment, the locatedness, the personality that is involved in theological reflection that in a lot of my training, they worked hard to erase. They worked hard to neutralize that kind of personal voice. And so as we're moving towards the end of our conversation, I, I want to move more towards the personal. And I'd like to ask you, first of all, to talk about what it means to embrace a location in doing theology, a, an embodiedness in doing theology. What does that gain for us? Help my listeners understand that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well— Perhaps like you, David, I've been trained as a theologian in a lot of kind of liberation and political theologies that really emphasize the fact that there is no neutral or objective knowledge. And as you mentioned, this often pushes back against classical Eurocentric ways of doing scholarship in general and and particularly theological scholarship. But I feel privileged to have been trained in a way where, while I felt all the, certainly the pressures of the academy, the pressures to justify my interests and writings and contributions for a kind of Eurocentric classical theological audience, I was always immersed and supported by theological communities that said there is no neutral knowledge. We're all bringing particular individual and communal perspectives to our search for God and the Christian life. And for me, that often provided great self-understanding as I explored my theological interests. But one of the things I realized as I moved through my studies and started to get interested in doing theological reflection on depression was that there there wasn't really a community of scholars doing this work. There was lots of depressed people in the academy. (laughs) There was lots of depressed people everywhere. But if I was going to do theological scholarship on mental health issues, I would need to take some of the sort of lessons that I've learned from these other approaches to theology, like feminist theology, like other forms of liberation theology, and try and bring that really experience groundedness and community orientation to this topic that doesn't have the same sort of theological community. That's changing slowly. But part of that for me was realizing that there are certain truths born of experience. There are certain sort of values and and norms, I think, that often accompany the activist circles who are working on mental health and that Rather than trying to hide that away and pretend that I'm taking some sort of objective approach to this topic, I could actually use the knowledge of my own experience and the commitments that have grown out of that for me to shape my scholarship, hopefully in in some positive ways. Well, and you've discussed how this approach to embodiment has shaped a different way of doing scholarship for you. And if this particular question ranges on the too personal, I'm happy to discard it. But I wonder, as you have worked on this project, Dust in the Blood, how has it shaped your relationship not only to your theology, but to your own experience of depression? Has this been a healing experience to go through this systematically and theologically, or are those two tracks separate for you? Mm -hmm. They're not separate for me. I I will say that one consequence of this book for my theology is that I think I really tried to write a, to, to lean into what I say I believe about the embodiedness of theology. And I really tried to write a book in my own voice. And for me, I'm a systematic theologian, but I'm also somebody who spent a lot of time in ministry 
I'm a person who cares very deeply about the life of the church, a person for whom like my my faith life and my my participation in the larger Christian community is really central to my theology. And for those listeners who are not theologians, you might think, of course, all these things go together. But I think theologians face, you know, pressures too about fitting into recognizable academic boxes and things like that. And I think one thing that's changed me from writing this book is I really went for it and tried to integrate the pastoral, spiritual, and big doctrinal concerns that are true to who I am into this project. And I I feel really good that I did that. And I hope that I continue to try and bring my whole self to my academic work. In terms of whether this book has been healing for me, I think it has. And I think I'm still processing how it has been healing for me. I think one of the kind of spiritual insights that I've gained from doing this work is I often, like a lot of other people, struggle with my relationship with God. I feel like having a really intense experience of suffering, like the episode of severe depression that I had during my graduate studies, has had lasting effects on how I experience God in my everyday life. And one of the things that this book has helped me think about is memory. I think a lot about today, not just about how I experience God today, but how I have experienced God in the past and the ways that those memories can sustain me. And I think writing this book, dwelling in the scriptures so much has helped me see in a new way that like so much of the Bible are people's memories of God, not just about how they're experiencing God now, but how they're experiencing the past. And I hope that that, you know, will sustain me into the future. Yeah, I hope so. Well, Dr. Jessica Koblenz, I have to say, as a person who experienced your book, as I mentioned at the top of the conversation, as a person for whom depression is a constant companion, I really found a lot of hope and I found a lot of kind of thoroughness is the word that I want to use. And I really appreciated that thoroughness. There wasn't an attempt here to give easy answers, but to really dig deep and to look into the complexity of this thing that is strange to name and strange to experience. And speaking just across here, one person to another with a shared experience, each of them idiosyncratic, I want to say how much I appreciate the effort at self-reflection and the effort at patience that went into writing this book. I'm so glad that you took the time to plumb the depths of your own experience. I'm especially grateful that you took the time to talk about it with me and my listeners today. Thank you so much, David. It means a lot to me. We've been speaking today with Dr. Jessica Koblenz. She's assistant professor in the Department of Religious Studies and Theology at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana, where her research and teaching focus on Catholic systematic theology, feminist theologies, and mental health in a theological perspective. Today, we've been talking about her recent book, Dust in the Blood, A Theology of Life with Depression. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kija. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.